The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome to another episode of Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. First up today, we're very excited to have returning guest Martin DeCaro. Martin is a broadcast journalist for The Washington Times and host of the History As It Happens podcast, which I know Chuck is a huge fan of. I've tuned into it a number of times. Highly recommend that, folks. And Chuck, take it away. So, um, folks, we're, we'll post this on our social media. Martin had a great um, episode this past Thursday called Our Radical Declaration, talking about the Declaration of Independence since July 4th is here coming up. And um, Martin, thanks for visiting us today. Chuck and Sam, I'm delighted to be here. Happy Independence Day Happy. in advance. Thank you very much. <laughs> you as well. So the podcast is History As It Happens. And yes, uh, Martin, I want to the... start off uh, with this question. So we all have origin stories. We were talking before the show, Apple, they did in a garage. I mean, it seems like all tech companies start in a garage for some reason, but for, nonetheless, it's a garage, right? But these origin stories define who we are, right? And I was thinking the other day on a flight where I hit four cities in five days, and the Delta flight attendant came up and handed me a thank you letter for flying three, that, three million miles, right? Like, I, I don't know what they expect me to do with the letter, but nonetheless, it was nice of her. And, and I thought about all the times I have taken Red Ice home um, to go see kids' games, be there for events. And I asked my kids, what do they remember? And they said, I just remember you sacrificed for the family. So that's an origin story for our family, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what is the origin story for our country, specifically July 4th? And does that origin story still stand? I would say yes. We're still living in the political world of the founders. Lots of changes, of course, lots of stuff has happened. We had a civil war in what is often called our second founding with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And of course, World War II made the United States a global power, right? Uncontested global power in the Cold War uh, victory in late 1980s. But to get back to your question, yes, our origins are still very important. They're still contested. But, you know, we're a nation built upon ideas, and ideas are never static. They're dynamic. And, you know, what does it mean to be an American? That question was trenchant in the late 18th century, and we're still contesting it today. And that's kind of the nature of democracy, right? It's permanent origin. It's permanent argument. Just look at the Supreme Court decisions that have come down the past week, right? They deal with fundamental rights, sometimes competing rights. You know, as David M. Kennedy, great historian, has said, uh, who gets a seat at the table of the great American barbecue? So our origins, you know, in retrospect, were rather puny when you think about what the revolutionaries accomplished, right? But that egalitarian rhetoric, those egalitarian ideals are still very much with us. We're still contesting them. Our history is a history of political conflict. Martin, I actually don't like the idea of a second founding as much as realistically after the Civil War was the, I I don't want to say culmination because we've seen with these Supreme Court cases even this week, the continuation, but that was really the first major step in fulfilling all the promises that the founders laid out. And, And part of the genius to me of of both the Declaration and the Constitution is that they understood that they were imperfect and that they would not achieve right away all the ideals they laid down on paper, but they left a path for us to do it. Absolutely. And I like how you link both the Declaration and the Constitution together. Obviously, the Constitution created our government or our second government because the Articles of Confederation didn't work out. But that was very Lincolnian of you. I mean, he saw both of them as being connected. Yeah, I mean, the revolution and I'm going to I'm going to cite Gordon Wood's work here, by the way, in my first podcast of this three-part series I'm doing. My guests were Sean Wilentz and Jim Oaks. They are fantastic. I hope everyone takes a listen to that. But I'll cite Gordon Wood here. He says, the revolution did more than legally create the United States. It transformed our society. The changes were radical and they were extensive. 
He says, you know, instead of focusing on what the revolution did not accomplish, to your point about it being incomplete, we should focus instead on why these ideas were so powerful and continue to animate our politics to this day. Our revolution eliminated monarchy. It created a large republic. It reconstituted, again, citing Gordon Wood, what Americans meant by public or state power brought an entirely new kind of politics and a new kind of democratic office holder onto the world stage. And I do think the revolutionaries of the late 18th century knew that they were, you know, I don't want to say that they knew they were talking for the ages, you know, for all time, but they got the sense that they were on history's stage as well. I mean, it was a revolution. It did reorder society. We're with Martin DiCaro. He is a broadcast journalist for The Washington Times and hosts a great podcast, History As It Happens. If you want to be smart, listen to that podcast. Um, let me ask you this question. I think there's one thing people don't understand about the Revolutionary War and the Declaration of Independence. And hopefully you can talk a little bit about it. A third of the country supported it. A third probably was ambivalent. And the other third was, you know, the British fanboys, right? I mean, yeah. is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, that's what John Adams said. You know, it's hard to say exactly what public opinion was at any given time. You know, there was no polling, of course. Even polls today aren't altogether accurate. But yeah, that's roughly how how historians see it. You know, you had that middle ground of people who were indifferent. I mean, revolutions and wars are scary things. And we know that ordinary people get swept up and are damaged by, you know, the the vicissitudes of war. How do you like that word? I love it. More so than, you know, others. So, yeah, you did have people who were ardent revolutionaries who wanted to break with Great Britain. You had other revolutionaries who were more moderate, looking to reconcile even well into 1776. And then, of course, you did have loyalists. Loyalists, but you know, loyalist, uh, the 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 number of loyalists and their strength was always overestimated by. I mean, that was one of the problems of the way Parliament and the King handled all this. They thought that loyalism was was stronger than it actually it was. It was actually, and as the war goes on, it becomes weaker and weaker. Well, and when you talk about that ambivalence, one of the things, if I if you go back and think about. Uh, it was ahistorical in many ways, but the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson, one of, oh, yeah. the, one of the depictions that I did like in that was that they showed the war happening in people's front yards. Right. Which, which was the truth, right? I mean, this was not being fought in some remote battlefield that nobody had any connection to. This was, this was a civil war, uh, a, a revolution fought in people's backyards, in people's front yards. And so you can understand the ambivalence of a lot of folks who didn't want to see that for any number of reasons, merely the, the protection of their family. The well, Revolutionary War was in many ways a civil war. Uh, loyalists had their lost their property. They were uh, outcasts from society for a while after the war ended. I mean, we can celebrate the revolution because it turned out the way you know we think it should have turned out. But at the time, of course, there was no unity about any of this. Right? <laughs> right. You know, right. We, we tend to look back at the revolution as a source of, well, something that all of us can celebrate. But I don't use the word unity. I mean, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're still content testing its meaning. We're still arguing over the meaning of uh, freedom and civil liberties and rights. I mean, that's something that comes up in this series I'm doing. Jack Rakove, another great historian, will be my guest uh, in part two of this series. He talks about, you know, the revolutionaries who are gathered at the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. They were not concerned with, you know, what we now consider to be statements of individual equality. You know, their purpose, and this makes sense, of course, was, you know, in the in the maelstrom of a war to declare that the colonists as a people had the same rights to self-government as other nations. But of course, they use universal language. I mean, Jefferson wrote it a certain way for certain reasons. And that language became aspirational for anybody. I mean, even during the war, enslaved black people they start to cite the Declaration of Independence. These ideas about egalitarianism are percolating at, at a level audible to normal people. And they're citing the Declaration to sue for freedom. And they're collaborating with whites to end slavery in the northern colonies and the northern states, which, as we know, does happen, mostly in a gradual sense. But there was an anti-slavery aspect to the revolution. Well, didn't Martin Luther King call the Declaration of Independence a promissory note? 
Am he I did right? at the March on Washington. The 60th anniversary of that is coming up this year. Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton at Seneca Falls in 1858. She cites the uh, the Declaration of Independence and her Declaration of Sentiments. And that, of course, is part of political struggle. It takes another 70 years for women to get the right to vote in the federal constitution and amendment, of course. Even Ho Chi Minh, a communist, <laughs> <laughs> he cited the Declaration of uh, Independence verbatim in 1945 when he tried to announce Vietnamese independence after World War II. You know, what I always found interesting about the founding and the writing of, of the Declaration, the Constitution, this was not the first time that any of these ideas had been put on paper, but it was the first time they were brought together as the foundation of a new government. In other words, these ideas had been percolating. It wasn't history. a talk the talk. It was a walk the walk. Right. Yeah. It, which made yeah. it very different. And they had no way of knowing it would even succeed. I mean, matter of fact, the, the Revolutionary War did not go well. <laughs> right. For, for a lot of reasons. I mean, they barely could keep an army in the field. I mean, this frustrated George Washington to no end. The the state governments didn't want to pay, you know, their fair share to keep an army supplied. And it was very difficult to raise taxes at all under the Articles of Confederation to pay for things. Inflation was rampant. As I mentioned, war is miserable. And there was also a smallpox outbreak. Yeah. Took- so, 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 Martin, that is a, that's a great point here. I. I think people <laughs> seem to forget that America's always been somewhat messy because we're allowed to speak our mind, right? And, and, and with a minute 30 here for our next segment, what as, you, as you've studied and interviewed all these great historians, what do you view as the top three or two or three qualities that an American president has to have unite people to for a common good, a common cause? You said an American president? Yeah. Oh, I think vision is important. I think it's important to invoke our origins, too, but not in an idealized, kind of silly or patriotic way. But, you know, I think the also under, for any president, right, any politician, to understand the importance of politics. I think a lot of people today kind of throw their hands up in the air. Yes. Uh, and I notice this a lot on the especially among younger people on the left. Politics is slow and ineffective. And, you know, our, all that egalitarian rhetoric was a lie when they said it back in the 18th century. I do not agree with that position. So, you know, you, you get this pessimistic, despondent type of attitude. When, you know, our history is a history of political conflict. It's about, you know, stating a vision. I think any successful politician can state a vision, but also be good at the politics. Fantastic. Martin, we're going to be coming back, folks, with more in just a moment from Martin DeCaro uh, of The Washington Times and host of History As It Happens podcast. Be sure you're tuning in and downloading. Go to breakingbattlegrounds.vote. You can get the links to all of our Substack, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the good stuff there. Make sure you're signing up to get our latest episodes right in your email box. We really appreciate it. And hang on because we have more with Martin DeCaro coming right up. back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. On the line with us is Martin DeCaro, broadcast journalist for the Washington Times and host of History as It Happens podcast. But folks, are you concerned with stock market volatility? If you're not, you should be. Market's been going up and down like a rocket. Any returns you're getting out there, it's very hard to count on them. That's why we at Breaking Battlegrounds have endorsed investing with Y-Refi. If you invest with Y-Refi, you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's a fixed rate of return at 10.25%. It's the best deal out there right now. Log on to investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or call them at 888-YREFI24 and tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. You won't regret it. Chuck, we're continuing on right now with Martin DeCaro. Fantastic conversation so far as we're heading into the July 4th super long weekend this time. Martin, talk to our audience a little bit. Expand further on our last question about, you know, how political conflict works in America. And it's sometimes it's just a messy pot of stew. 
Yeah, no one's going to hire me to be a political consultant, by the way. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, being good at politics is hard. I mean, there's not just one actor either. So you have a you know brilliant political manipulator like Lyndon Johnson, but you know he wasn't the only actor in all of that as well. He needed help from other people. But I guess my point is, you know, I, I'm more interested in, you know, I've been doing these uh, shows now about the American Revolution, at just trying to understand why things happened the way they did rather than saying, oh, I wish this had happened sooner than it actually did. You know, why did it take 20 years to finally get rid of the slave trade through federal legislation 1807-1808 following the compromise that was made at the Constitutional Convention? Why did it take Abraham Lincoln all of 18 months, as if 18 months is a really long amount of time, to do a full emancipation proclamation out of the, after the start of the Civil War? You know, why did it take 70 years after Elizabeth Cady Stanton in the Seneca Fall meetings in 1858 70 years to finally get, you know, women's suffrage. Well, instead of saying, you know, complaining that things didn't happen on the schedule we think it should have, we need to think more historically and really understand why things happened the way they did. How is an American Revolution even possible to begin with? Why were people ready to hear those egalitarian words and act on them when they did? I think we get a better understanding of our origins when we do that. It, because in, in many ways, Martin, a lot of those ideas were not to the benefit of the the most powerful people who had guided our society and every other society prior to the implementation uh, of these ideals, right? I mean, they, they benefited from the system that was previously in place. Absolutely. I mean, you can make the point about Thomas Jefferson himself, right? He penned the document with some help from Adams and Franklin and others. He was a lifelong slaveholder, and he certainly did not want to see slavery. Well, you know, Jefferson's views on slavery do change over time. Early in his career, he took some aggressive moves to try to end slavery, but later on he didn't, uh, partly because it was an unpopular thing to do in Virginia, which was a very large, you know, slaveholding colony than slaveholding state. But certainly, yeah, um, you know, this is a very corrosive idea, uh, egalitarianism. It challenges the status quo. Other people are free to interpret those words any way they want in a democratic society and say, you know, and I want a seat at the table as well. So, yeah, you're right. Um, of the 56 delegates at the Second Continental Congress, we call them our founding fathers, who is one, besides the obvious, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, who's, who's somebody that stands out that people don't pay enough attention to? I think somebody like John Dickinson, who was a patriot and a revolutionary, but he was rather moderate. I think it's interesting to look at the way, and I can recommend a book about this, Please actually. Do. Please do. Yeah, well, and I think this book is still in print. I, I was able to find a copy of it. Wouldn't that be great if I recommend a book that no one can actually yeah, find? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Beginnings of National Politics by Jack Rakove. I, I use this book uh, to frame our conversation in part two of my series. Dickinson was very, very interesting as to why he was trying to still reconcile with the crown. You know, people like James Otis, George Mason, they articulated many of these ideas and ideals. Well, we don't often think of them. They don't come to mind right away. We'd rather think of Jefferson, Franklin, Madison, George Washington. With their, Gallup this week released a poll, and the headline, Extreme Pride Americans Remains Near Record Low, which was funny about it is 67% <laughs> of Americans are extremely or very proud of the United States. That's a pretty high number, right? And then, which, and, which throws a lot yeah, of the modern yeah, narrative Yeah, the yeah. Like, and then another the 22% of youth adults are moderately proud. I mean, so basically you're over, you're close to mid-80s on this, right? But why do you think to our audience— why do you think we should be proud to be Americans? Well, you know, I'm also not happy with a lot of things these days. Yeah. And, you know, I guess depending on your politics, maybe the Supreme Court has you pulling your hair out. Maybe you think, hey, this is how our founders intended it to be, right? Right. You know, your question again, why Why, oh, why should people be proud of, of their country? Yeah. I think because, you know, we have a premise for a politics, a progressive politics, if you want to use that word, to make positive change. Now, maybe some people aren't happy with that use of uh, my, my choice of words there. So I guess what I'm, I guess what I'm trying no, I'm, to say. No, I'm all for stealing progressive back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if people are going to sneer at our country, right, and our founding and these ideals and the egalitarian rhetoric and say, well, it was a lie then and we've never been able to fulfill it, as if anyone actually argues it was a reflection of reality in the late 18th century, right? Well, if they're going to sneer at that, as James Oak said on my show, then what's their premise 
for change. What are you going to base your politics on? Right. I think I like our system. Right. I, I like the idea of fundamental human equality as the guiding principle for our nation. I, I think that's a great point, because with all the tear the system down rhetoric you hear uh, today in the news and, and on social media, the one thing that's missing is what what follows. What are what are you trying to replace these current systems with other than some vague notion of. You have a my way well, or highway mentality is what you have. Well, that's yeah. people who give up on politics then, you know, yeah. abolish the Senate, abolish the Supreme Court. I mean, that's not serious but, stuff. But, you no. know, but in fairness, too, you're also a patient man. I mean, for example, you're a Jets fan, right? Yeah. So this has taught you <laughs> <laughs> this has taught you amazing patience over the years, right? Yes, and I, I will never give up on them because I know the the moment I finally you know throw in the towel, they'll win. I remember it's, I remember before the Giants became this this great power years when I grew up in the Northern California, the old next door neighbor who loved the Giants said, "Look, I've just learned to say there's always next year," you know, and I think that's for the Jets fans too. You, you know, you know what I, you know what I want for the Jets season? I want a great like six games from Aaron Rodgers who goes down with a tragic injury, and we yeah. see. We we Zach, see Zach, we see Zach, Zach Wilson, Wilson come, come back, back doing, with the all time great like, comeback yeah great comeback rebirth of his career. <laughs> well, you know everyone needs a soap opera. Some yeah. people watch real soap operas. I watch the Jets. Well, I get I get the New York Post in my news every morning, and and yeah. you know their panic over that would be fantastic. Oh, it'd be amazing. <laughs> great sports section in that paper. <laughs> they, Martin, they Martin, what else with our limited time here? What else do you think people should pay more attention to regarding the July Fourth? We have one minute. You know what? Go and read the Declaration of Independence. Everyone can cite those you know fifty five most famous words. Read the grievances, especially the final grievance. And we didn't get to this, but that's okay. This whole idea of a pro-slavery revolution, that's a nonsensical idea that's been put out there by the 1619 Project. Yeah, read those grievances and then go and understand, you know, what was the purpose behind them? Why was Jefferson and his compatriots, why did they, you know, go after King George III the way they did after, you know, going after Parliament? Through the, most of the the antidote to ahistorical nonsense is actual history. Thank you so much, Martin DeCaro, uh, broadcast journalist for Washington Times and History as it happens podcast. We love having you on the program and look forward to having you again. Folks, Breaking Battlegrounds back with more in just a moment. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. Welcome to Breaking Battlegrounds. I'm your host, Chuck Warren, with my co-host, Sam Stone. Today, we are lucky to have with us on these two segments, Congressman Blake Moore. Uh, Congressman Moore represents Utah's first congressional district. He is also the first ever Republican from Utah who sets, sits on the House Ways and Means Committee, which discusses issues we talk about all the time, Sam, health care, social security, work and welfare subcommittees. Pretty much all the most important stuff in the country goes through ways and means. Exactly. He is married to Jane Boyer, who the former Jane Boyer, and she is a very candid wife. And so we want to know how she's candid with you, Blake. And he's also the father of four active boys. And he's also a little league coach. How are you as a little league coach, Congressman? You know, I've, uh, I had a ref pull me aside the other day. And <laughs> he said, wait, you're the congressman, aren't you? And I go, oh, boy. And he said, he goes, you were on our case today, but I like it. I'd vote for you because you're fiery. I like that you got passion. Um, so <laughs> I figured it, worked. it could very well work in the opposite for me as well, uh, too. So I do have to be careful. <laughs> so what, what, are the, what are the age range for your boys? 10, 7, 7, and about 18 months. So which one do you coach, the 10-year-old or 7-year-old? It mostly to this point, the 10 year old, uh, the seven year old started playing a lot of sports kind of right when I was first running for office. And that was that was tough. So I did a lot with the seven year old. And now I'm picking it back up now that I'm, you know, in my second term and a little bit of a groove scheduling wise that I can, uh, you know, try to try to get engaged a little bit more. So mostly 
mostly yes football basketball and baseball you get me outside those three sports i i don't know what i'm doing or does your wife feel outnumbered in the house or everybody knows who's really in charge there they know who's in charge but she um i actually wanted the girl more uh ironically enough i i think if we were to have had a girl it would have been she she would have definitely said that was the best thing but (laughs) i still am the one that that wants the daughter wants the wedding one day to give away the hand, all that stuff, a little bit of a tr- traditionalist there. So I, I do feel like we never got that girl, but uh, we definitely don't need five boys. So the risk of going for any more is going to be way, way <laughs> you're not, you're not taking that to Vegas. Um, uh-uh. so how do you handle the travel? I mean, with four young boys, um, and I think your family lives in the district in Utah. How do you handle your travel back and forth? Well, fortunately, I'm about 15 minutes from the airport and we have direct flights from Salt Lake. So that is a uniquely special thing. We can have direct to, to DC. So that cuts down. I have colleagues from North Dakota, Iowa, some places in Texas. They're an hour, hour and a half away from an airport. Then they're taking a, a, a layover. Um, it can always be worse for you. And so my mindset is one, it could always be worse. Uh, I have it pretty, pretty good. Um, think of what some of our military folks go through and the time they spend away from their family and, and, you know, the, the duty and honor that they do in their life and uh, their service is more honorable, I think, than, than what we do in Congress, but it is a fight in Congress and, and it is, it is a sacred position. So um, uh, other folks have always sacrificed more. I think that's how I look at it. My wife deals with it. She, she said to me when I first ran, now, listen, if you win, which I don't think you will. Um, <laughs> uh, you, when you win, you can't give me a hard time or make any of those snide comments you do when we budget together. Uh, you can't be passive aggressive about babysitting costs. You just have to. You just have to take it and you have to deal with it and not give me a hard time and you let me own that. And- Congressman, we we could feel bad for you, but we've had the member from Guam on this show, and, yeah. and there's nobody yeah. who's got a travel schedule as as rough as that poor guy. Exactly. Um, quickly here tell us a little bit about your work with small business is there any bills you're sponsoring on it so in 2017 republicans um you know went at it alone they used the budget reconciliation process which allows you to pass a bill without uh you know by bypassing the filibuster when you have the white house house and senate republicans and democrats both do this often um sometimes that leads to big legislation that you wouldn't otherwise do or be able to do given the filibuster uh but um they, 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 they did the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. And in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act was a lot of things. And it is our job now, and we're in a different political environment, so we're not going to be able to do that same thing over again and re-up everything that's in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act because it's not a political reality, right? The, the things that expired, the Democrats aren't going to go on board with. But there are issues, there are, there are provisions inside that bill that we have to be able to look back and say, what has worked? What right. has driven growth? And the Small Business Growth Act that we put together that was passed out of the committee just a few weeks ago, something we're really excited about. And basically, it doubles your ability to take itemized deductions on um, capital improvements, uh, farm equipment, office equipment, and just things that you're investing in your own business, um, uh, a, a, ma- a major piece of manufacturing. If you could write all, that all, all these th- All these things that increase productivity and jobs, correct? Exactly. We're going to take a quick break here with Congressman Blake Moore, Utah's first congressional district. He sits on the House Ways and Means Committee. This is Breaking Battlegrounds. You can find us at breakingbattlegrounds.vote. We'll be right back. Battlegrounds with your host Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. Continuing on the line with us, Congressman Blake Moore from Utah's first congressional district here in just a moment. But folks, are you struggling with stock market volatility right now, especially with Joe Biden in office? 
What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market? A portfolio where you know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose. There's no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Your interest is compounded daily. You're paid monthly. There are no fees. And this is a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a fixed rate of return up to 10.25%, up to 10.25%. It's the best deal out there in investing right now. Check out our friends at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI24 and tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. Okay, Chuck, continuing on with Congressman Moore. Congressman, are you familiar with the proposal that I believe it's Congressman Schweikert here from Arizona has put up to increase the minimum uh, before businesses have to file a 1099 for contract employees and the like from, I believe it's currently $600 or 800 up to 5,000. Talking to a lot of small business owners, that's the kind of simple thing that would make their lives massively easier. Is that something that, that, you're looking to support and that others should be talking about more because yep. I, I heard a little about it and then it seems to have disappeared. It's absolutely, yeah, I know about it. We passed it in the uh, the economic package a few weeks ago. This is the, the this is an opportunity that, that um, the chairman, Chairman Smith wanted us to go out into, you know, regular America, not just inside the Beltway and do some, and do some public hearings. And this is one of the things that rang true and kind of highlighted to us, well, we need to really be focused on this. This is like listening to, you know, everyday Americans running their businesses. This is what we learned from them. We're like, this, this was set years and years ago. And if you would have just adjust for inflation, it would go up. But that's how you get with the regulatory body. It becomes archaic and you don't create opportunities to be dynamic within the system. So it's a no brainer, in my opinion, it's an overly burdensome. And I think the best example is the chairman Smith, who still runs a small family farm. If someone comes and bales hay for him, like every like high school senior that comes and bales hay for, you know, 10 bucks an hour, they end up having to do a full 1099. That is not the intent. So up the threshold and still holding people accountable. This isn't where the, uh, the all the tax evaders are doing this. The, a bunch of high school seniors. This is not where it is. And babysitters like no yeah. smarter in our economy. The, the tax evaders tend to be in much higher tax brackets than people who are filing a few thousand dollars in a 1099. Exactly. Right? Yep. I, one of the things that I think has been a good focus within this Congress, and, and this touches on it, but is, and, and it seems like we could at least find some more room with Democrats to agree on this, is going through some of these archaic rules and saying, hey, does this really still work or does it need to be adjusted or does it need to be replaced or gotten rid of? It deregulating in a way that doesn't reduce oversight is very possible, isn't it? Yeah, it's very possible. Uh, and we need to be adults back in Washington and find those simplistic things we can address on. In the Ways and Means Committee right now, trade is largely bipartisan. And we actually have really good collaborative work together. We, we do on that. Taxation has become so toxic um, that I feel that I fear people aren't looking at the big picture uh, and, and if you take an individual piece, I think you got a lot, a lot of agreement, but it's how you move it forward. And that's yeah. the thing that I don't think Americans necessarily understand well enough is, yeah, we agree on a lot of things, but then how you move the package forward, it, do you tie it to something else that's less popular and try to get more support? That's where we've got to get to more single issue um, voting that would make everything run more smoothly back there. Well, that's absolutely right. We've often wondered, and we talked to various members, and they all say, yes, you're correct. Why don't you push more single issues? So, for example, here's one. We had a, uh, a former attorney here who worked on the border, and she's suggesting, for example, an immigration bill that says, unless you come through a port of entry, and there's about 327 of them in the United States, unless you come through a port of entry, you're immediately denied asylum. You need to come through the front door. Right. right. There needs to be a process. That seems like a pretty easy bill. Somebody just submitted that issue alone. One pager. It gets through. Well, Am I from, wrong? From an Arizona perspective, it separates the wolves from the sheep. Right. Because, because the wolves will keep going through. So why don't. So, so Congressman Moore, why don't they do that more? I, I, <laughs> I, I, it, it would make so many things better in our legislative experience. Um, I, immigration particularly has become a wedge issue. I, right. I don't know how else to put it for 40 years. We, we've had people that want to, be, to, 
to build the right type of policy. Um, you either have to do one of two things on immigration, and I'll be brief. You either have to do what we're talking about, make it very simplistic and tie it together, or make it more comprehensive. And, and I think people want to get like halfway comprehensive. Like I'm supportive of, of truly looking at DACA and a visa system that makes sense and is streamlined and gets more workers here. I want more workers here. My district desperately needs more good workforce here. And that can come from uh, a more streamlined immigration. But if we do all, if we do that before we tighten up the border process, then the cartels will just be, um, the cartels will be empowered. So you have to build a more comprehensive approach. I do like what Marie Salazar is doing um, in that comprehensive piece. I just don't think we're we're not ready for it right now um, because as Republicans, we want to make sure that you see the first part done. And that is the good policy, remain in Mexico policy and tighten up the border security. And then we'll get plenty of people on board for 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 streamlining it. But it's uh, it's a conundrum and it's a wedge issue. And that's that's that. And we're not living up to what the Americans need. Uh, every single person back in Washington isn't isn't living up to what they need. So, Congressman Moore, let's talk about a simpler issue. And I say that sarcastically. You're on the House Ways and Means Committee. What do we do about Social Security? I mean, it's a ticking time bomb. People are not being honest about the reform. I, I have not heard any re Republican to say, yeah, we're going to cut benefits now. We've made promise to some people currently retired and those close to retirement and that need to be upheld. But what do we need to do for a workforce in their 20s and 30s who are going to have 80 plus year, you know, longevity? Yep. What do we do? So we took the best first step last last session of Congress in the 117th to pass the Secure 2.0 bill. Secure 2.0 will allow for younger workers to have an extra five or so years saving for retirement. If you are paying it down your student loan, say you've graduated from grad school, you're 25 years old, and you start paying down your student loan, you all, you all oftentimes have to choose between paying down your student loan or contributing to your 401k. Your company can now, if you are if you're paying your student loan down, and a big, big uh, win in SCOTUS today about the student loan repayment. We can get into that, but the company can now contribute on your behalf, even if you're not putting in your own match. So we're going to start having people uh, save for retirement much earlier. Um, and it, that that will that, that's a great later. step, Congressman. And thank you. I mean, it's I, the right it's the right step. It had over 400 votes in Congress. Uh, in, in the House to pass, very bipartisan, it's productive. We we have to create other incentives um, that you do probably have to means test Social Security going forward. Um, we got people getting it that really have, that don't really, they don't really need it. And they could actually probably delay if they were to be willing to take it in case they lived longer just to offset that risk. So there's all sorts of productive ways we can be doing this without just saying we need to tax more um, because we have a worker to, to retirement work uh, ratio issue. And we've known it's been coming. I will say this retroactively, if we would have done what President Bush had tried to push, tried to do, we would have been putting money instead of just into a, uh, you know, a government low yield bond, like the trust fund, we would have been putting money into mutual funds. And, and, and Dems, Democrats will always say, oh, that you're privatizing it. You just want to help your Wall Street buddies. That's fundamentally false. And they know it. And it's dishonest. If we would have done that, we would have been able to grow the amount of money that we have to contribute to that over the last 20 years. Would anybody not choose to put money into a S&P 500 uh, 20 years ago? Absolutely not. It was closing at 900 and today it's closing at 4,000. It, stock markets go up and to the right. Generally over time, they always have. If we don't, if we're not willing to trust that, then we're not going to be able to, 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 to do that. So there's all sorts of things out there you could be doing. And we're just stuck in stagnation. And if we don't do something in the next 10 years to truly address this issue, um, then, you know, we are we are literally dooming people to having far fewer, you know, 75% of the, the benefit automatically kicks in. So we're, we're dooming them regardless. It, it's a it's a really dishonest talking point, Chuck, to say that the market is somehow robbing people because over any one or two or three or five year period, the market may go up or down, but over any 10 year period in US history, over 20 years, 50 years, it always goes up. Well, it's even look more- Ivy Leagues, Look at all these Ivy League schools with their endowments. Right. Like, they're, they're out there They're out there engaging in in, in growth opportunities, in, in, in market opportunities. And and I don't hear any Democrats complaining about all these Ivy Leagues that are that are you know using their endowments to, to, to cover their expenses. And they're doing a they're, they're doing a fabulous job. And they're also you know, very profitable. 
and we could be doing that more with uh, with the government. I, I think Senator uh, Cassidy, I believe, has got some really good proposals that that way. It's tougher now because we just don't. The trust fund is in such a dire, it's in a more dire situation than it was back in the early 2000s when when President George W. Bush wanted to push this more. Um, it's just disingenuous. And I'm really glad, Congressman, that you brought up means testing because I've heard too many politicians be afraid of that, but I've never talked to anyone who was rich who cared. No. You know, I mean, never. honestly, if you're rich, the amount you're going to get from Social Security is so minimal that it takes an actual Scrooge to care about whether they're going to get that money at that point. That That's just Here's the way what, it is. And what wealthy people want to see is good money going after good. If their good money is going after complete government waste, and right now we have just too much government spending, um, and people are like, well, geez, I would love to be contributing to paying down our debt if I knew that it was going to actually make a difference. But if it's not making a difference, then they shouldn't. So so I kind of see it both ways, but you're right. You've been, and I think you can offset the risk by saying, I don't need to engage in this for, you know, so, and if I live past I'm 80 or, you know, at, at 78, I will defer that to that point. There's no real serious conversations going on. It's more so just a little bit of of the latter. And, you know, Republicans had a chance to do it in 2017 and they they deferred and they President Trump wanted to wait till he was in his second term. And it's so ironic right now. I'm a guy that can call it both ways to see President Trump criticize House Republicans trying to say we're out there trying to get rid of Social Security. That is also disingenuous and it's all political and it's just kind of lobbying for older people's votes. And that's, that, that's not what, that's not being an adult back there as, as not well. Not good governance. That's no, for not sure. Good governance at all. Um, we have two minutes left here. So it's, we're coming up on the July 4th weekend. Tell our audience um, what this holiday means to you and specifically, what is your hope and vision for America 10, 20 years down the road? Oh, thank you. I love that question. I really appreciate you focusing on that. You know, it's not just a uh, talking point or uh, a feel-good statement, but but God, country, and family—they really do mean a lot, and they should be what everybody what 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 we root ourselves in. For this holiday, it's this family for me. I've always been able to find time to boat, to golf, to to do something outdoors. We're not great campers; we got young kids still, but like in Utah, <laughs> like this holiday matters. Um, and there's always time to, to, to find opportunities to, to be with family. And uh, we, I, I love it. And Utah is a unique place because you have the 4th of July and then you have the 24th of July. And that's our sort of a holiday when the pioneers came into to Utah. So we call it Pioneer Day. And so there's a lot of fireworks, a lot of God, country and family in, in this place. And my, my honest vision for America is to recognize that we have some we have policy differences Um but if we let those policy differences divide us continually, and um, if we if that moves into constant personality and division, then China wins, uh, Russia wins, uh, our adversaries win, and we don't have the strength that we have uh, and what we've led the world on over the over the last century. And my vision is to 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 be firm on where I'm at policy, defend it try to persuade and then look for opportunities to, 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 to unite our nation more so than, than I feel like we are right now. Congressman, we have 15 seconds with you. Where can people follow you on social media? Electmore.com is my website or uh, just go to rep Blake Moore. There's uh, I, I can't remember. So there's campaign and there's but <laughs> rep Blake Moore um, on all my socials. Uh, Great. And we would love, would love a follow. Congressman Moore, Utah's first congressional district. Thanks for joining us. Have a great 4th of July. This is Thank Breaking Battlegrounds. We'll be back after this break. Welcome to the podcast only segment of Breaking Battlegrounds. Obviously, folks, we wish you all a very happy, healthy, and family friendly 4th of July. Uh, hopefully, all of you have fantastic plans with all the people that you love out there. Um, but 
you know, one of the things we love in this studio is our country. And uh, Chuck has lined up uh, some audio that I think you folks will really enjoy. Some of the great actors in history reading the Declaration of Independence and, and reading into the grievances, because I, I think that's true. No, I mean, when's the last time people really read it? I mean, no, you see yeah. all, you see these politicians, especially Republicans, carry around this. The pocket know, constitution. The pocket constitution. But I, as I was as we were preparing for the show, I actually found this on YouTube where you have some actors, Mel Gibson and, and Michael Douglas, read the declaration. And they talk about the grievances, which you don't ever think about. Right. Right. It just reminds me of the time I watched my daughter by myself for a week. And I said, did you enjoy your week with daddy? And she said... And she listed her grievances. So I feel <laughs> she's obviously a revolutionary, right? But, um, folks, we just want to tell you as well, before we go and sign off for the weekend with this, um, this great presentation on the Declaration of Independence is um, we are expanding. Um, come July, we will also be adding to the markets Cincinnati, Wheeling, West Virginia, Fairbanks, Alaska, Florence, South Carolina, Bismarck, North Dakota, Panama City, Florida, Mississippi, and Tulsa, Oklahoma. So can, we're excited. Can, can about I that? say, Chuck, that I don't blame the people in Fairbanks if they're not tuning in until it goes dark exactly. for the next nine months? Yeah, but and then they'll have plenty of time to catch up. Then they have no up. excuse. Then they have plenty of time yeah, to no, catch up. Yeah, no, absolutely. We have a whole catalog of back episodes at breakingbattlegrounds.vote. You, you all in Fairbanks can go up and check out. Exactly. It'll help get you through the long, dark winter. Exactly. So, anyway, we leave this and we wish you a happy July 4th. One thing you can do to celebrate this is actually read the Declaration of Independence. We are going to have, as we sign off here, this great uh, recitation. It's narrated by Morgan Freeman as well, of course. I mean, who else would do it? And um, but, if, but Anything narrated by Morgan but, Freeman is the best thing possible. But, folks, look, there's lots of things about America we don't like. But as a person who's traveled to 64 countries, there is literally not a better country in this world, the United States of America. And it is the, as Martin Luther King said, it's a promissory document. And we're always trying to get better and better. And it's uh, that falls upon all of us. You can't expect one person to do this. And that's the thing to remember about this. But if you've ever traveled to try to say that the United States is the most racist or one of the most racist countries on earth, travel the globe. Well, ask the, ask, the, ask the French right now. Yeah. Right. Um, right. Now, so. this is we we need to celebrate and love this country because it's worth it. And it we will keep getting better. The country will keep improving. We'll keep making better uh, on the promises we've made. Right. Right, right. So anyway, folks, have a great July 4th. We hope you all you enjoyed this um, production of the Declaration of Independence, and have a great week. Picture this. A group of politicians from the 13 American colonies come together in this building, right here to plot what turns out to be a revolution. A contentious Continental Congress needs to set forth some convincing reasons for declaring war. Congress turns to a brilliant 33-year-old aristocrat from Virginia, Thomas Jefferson. In a matter of days, the red-haired wonder writes one of the most celebrated manifestos for human freedom and self-government in the history of Western civilization. The Continental Congress authorizes Philadelphia printer John Dunlap to print 200 broadsides, poster-sized sheets. The document, unsigned, is then rushed to waiting horsemen who put it in their saddlebags and gallop throughout the colonies. See, if this revolutionary war is to be won, thousands of farmers and tradesmen must be persuaded to take up arms and fight. And they do. Not many people realize it today, but scholars believe Jefferson intended for the Declaration to be performed and not just read. Its words and rhythms were written to be spoken in proud and defiant tones in grand public places. It's a safe bet that the Continental Congress never had in mind a performer like me. That is to say, a black man. Thomas Jefferson was not ignorant of the problem of slavery, of course. He called it a moral and political depravity. And in the original draft of the Declaration, denounced the slave trade as a cruel war against human nature itself. But Congress thought better of this particular item and deleted it. In fact, there was no mention of slavery or black people or of women for that matter 
in this preeminent statement on the equal rights of man. So it makes you wonder, how could a man who himself held slaves write with such incredible passion and eloquence about human liberation and the promise of a democratic republic? Why, some may ask, do I bring up such embarrassing truths on this glorious occasion? I answer, the real glory of the Declaration of Independence has been our nation's epic struggle throughout history to close the gap between the ideals of this remarkable document and the sometimes painful realities of American life. The Declaration symbolizes the birth of our nation, of course, but also the constant struggle to achieve its ideals. Consider, the words of this document inspired the French Revolution in 1789. 200 years later, the revolt of Chinese students in Tiananmen Square. It inspired Abraham Lincoln to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, Martin Luther King Jr. to fight for civil rights, and women's suffragettes to fight for the vote. This business of fulfilling the Declaration of Independence is a difficult struggle, but it is also an ennobling struggle. Jefferson called the Declaration an expression of the American mind. It is why this nation is so great and why I am so proud to be an American. Here now are those sentiments as first expressed in this very place. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. Laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable only to tyrants. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into 
compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers incapable of annihilation have returned to the people at large for their exercise. The state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states, for that purpose, obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. For quartering large bodies of armed troops among us. For protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. For taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments. For suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is, at this time, transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy, scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy of the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity. And we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them, as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, 
do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states that they are absolved from all allegiance to the british crown and that all political connection between them and the state of great britain is and ought to be totally dissolved and that as free and independent states they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now.